It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. to the Neil Haley show. And, you know, I start thinking about this guest and I, you know, as a former Pittsburgh and again, now I'm relocated in Texas, uh, going back and forth to Pittsburgh as well. My business is more in Texas. I start thinking about specifically enough this guy, cause I hear the radio all the time and everything. I never thought I'd have him on the show, uh, but uh, you know, I interview all these major celebrities. So I got to have a, a legendary Pittsburgh, uh, entrepreneur, the uh he's an author speaker jim shorty jim thanks for stopping by how are you no oh, i'm great i'm so happy to be here i mean it sincerely i really i really am happy to be here so thank you for inviting me it's it's it's, a, it's an honor oh i thank you i appreciate that and, and we'll definitely for the pittsburgh people who know the name jim shorty now did you ever think that that name would people would know like if you go to pittsburgh and you say that name people know you and it's yeah. from brand recognition it's yeah. what it's what people all we're trying to do as my agency works on is how to, to build a brand uh, brand recognition through growing, growing a tribe and a community. You literally, that name grew to where you are today. So when you first started out, Jim Shorkey, how did you get that brand to where it is today? It's amazing. Especially locally. We're yeah. talking locally. And yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, so, so, People say that to me a lot, you know, did you ever think this would happen? And truthfully, I didn't. I had no idea. I was just trying to survive. Uh, my, my, uh, my, my father died on uh, March 24th, 1996. And, you know, if I knew, I often say, if I knew half as much as I thought I knew when my dad died, I would have been pretty darn smart. Long story short, started to run a business according to my ways, my arrogance, my know-it-all type of an attitude. And ended up two years later, bankruptcy imminent. Hey, we weren't going to make it. We were going down. We were going out of business. And that was two years, two years after my dad died. Now to go back a little bit, my dad ran the business for 22 years. I mean, he owned a business for 20 years, I should say, and he ran it successfully. And here I am two years later, the heir apparent, the, the prodigy, so to speak, and it's, it's bankruptcy imminent. And it felt really, really bad, really awful, terrible, embarrassing, cried, the whole thing. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I had to figure it out. And, and so I, I, what I, what I did after I finally bought him out is I went to, uh, to I sought expert counsel, which was the advice I received from, from Napoleon Hill in a great book, Think and Grow Rich. Mm -hmm. And I, that's what I did. And I went to Mr. Hamilton, who was my dad's former partner. And I just asked him for a list of 10 things that I should be doing to be a successful automobile dealer. And he thought about that and said, well, let me think about it. Come back tomorrow. I'll have a list for you. So I go back the next day, get the list. And I started to execute that list. And lo and behold the needle started to move uh, just a tad you know so i kept doing it moved a little more and i went back for more information and kept moving and went to all these different sources chrysler financial gmac nada think tanks etc books videos like what you're doing here and just learned and learned and learned and i just kept moving that needle but the, the idea was not to build any kind of a brand the idea was not to be quote jim shorty jim shorty is just my name that's who i am but the idea was to survive and then to to prosper and and, and, and actually, I started to prosper and, and to, to make, you know, a lot of money, but I was so afraid of going back to bankruptcy imminent that I just kept pressing and pressing and pressing. So a lot of times people will say, well, you know, you got to go after a goal and you, know, you want to go after the positive goal and all that. And I do agree with that. I think that's important. But at the same time, I think it's also important to very clearly identify what it is that you don't want, what consequences you don't want, and to uh, really dwell on those as well. And, 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 and most importantly, is to figure out why. Why don't I want this? What, what, what does my reason why not make me cry? And why do I want this? Does my reason why make me cry? And so I really dwelled on those two things. And then lo and behold, the name Jim Shorkey did become a household name only because we were pursuing the idea of selling cars 
making a buck, getting out of the hole, et cetera. And it just kind of happened. It wasn't like, I'm going to make this a household name. That was never my goal. My goal was survival, if that makes sense. That's a long answer to a short question. So it's a household name. Did you, the, the advertising, putting money into advertising, so you're getting probably different questions than you think because I'm thinking as a marketer, okay? I'm thinking as, okay, you're starting this. There, It's, it's a red ocean of different car dealerships and they all run TV commercial, radio commercials, but you kept surviving in that process in television, but you also, your name is synonymous in that, in the area because you kept growing and you yep. said, you talk about Napoleon Hill thinking grow rich, but what did you think about in the marketing end of things So marketing your name and how you made your name a trusted name in Pittsburgh? Yeah. Well, and that's the, that's the thing. It's, it's not a question of making it trusted as far as like, it's not like an automatic thing. I had to, you know, we had to really figure out a way to give the best possible service that we could to every single client up front, you know, from the greeting of hi, how are you to the end product of selling a car and then servicing that car after the fact. And so we really worked very hard on taking care of the customer. So when a guy said to me years ago, and I'm talking probably 30 years ago now, said, don't ever advertise service unless you're willing to provide service. So we advertised what a great day. And this was a great place to come. And it was a great day. And we were enthusiastic and positive. And so if you think about it, what a great day, right? How can we say what a great day and then make it a bad day for the client, right? That's, that's, you're, you're, you're going to get smacked in the face every single time. You're going to say, wait, what about that? What a great day crap, you know? So we had to, you have to have a message and it has to be, you know, a tagline oriented message, which what a great day was and is, but at the same time, we had to deliver on that message of what's making it such a great day. And so we had to make it a great day for the client. And as that happened, what a great day became more of a, of an influencer along with the name Jim Shorkin, because that only happened because what, what my advertising agent, much the same as yourself. I mean, I'm a car salesman. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an advertising guy. So I'm not a marketing expert, but I do believe in expert counsel. And so when I decided to change directions uh, with the dealership in terms of how we were marketing back in 2004, I just had this intuitive sense that we needed to go a different direction. And we wanted to go more mainstream. We wanted to make Suzuki at the time a, a really top flight brand in terms of brand recognition. And so I brought in Frank Marmion, who's, who was, uh, it was my advertising agent, uh, uh, at, at a time and we parted ways and then he, I brought him back and I said, Hey, I want to change directions. And so what he did was he came in and he had a sandwich board and a couple different placards that he made. And it was all centered around this idea of what a great day. And he said, he said to me, cause I used to answer the phone. I got this from Zig Ziglar. I used to, my, my phone answering was what a great day. This is Jim Shorty speaking. And I'll say it in, in really the way I said, it. I was yeah. like, what a great day. This is Jim Shorty speaking. Right. And I said that every time I answered the phone. So Frank Marmy says to me, you know, I always like the way you answered the phone. I think we can make this into a marketing message. And so what happened out of that was we, so we had the, 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 the logo and the, and it was all Frank designed all that. And right. again, he, he's the expert. I'm just a guy. I'm just a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit player at this point. So we had that, we had that message and, um, and we had a jingle, which was right. just repeated every time, every time, every time, right? Yeah. And so, but we started to, so what, what Frank said was, say, Jim, I always liked the way you answered the phone. And so he designed this thing around me answering the phone. So believe it or not, when we did the commercials, they actually were live commercials over the phone. I'd be sitting here like you and I are sitting here talking right now. And my sister would bring me the script and say, here it is. Frank's on line one. And so I would say, excuse me a second, Neil, I got to go do this commercial. And I literally got so good at it that I could leave this right now go through the commercial, having never seen the, the script, and I do it in five minutes, one take, we're done. And so it was a script and, uh, and, and or how do you say, it? is it a script? script? Yeah, script, the script, some, some sort of script or, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyways, I'm from Pittsburgh. We don't pronounce things the right way, so you know that. But anyway, well, I know so, that. <laughs> yeah. so uh, I, uh, anyways, they would hand me the, the script and I would just, and I would ad lib per se to a degree, but yeah. all minds would get so good, but it really was designed to be, visceral from the gut extemporaneous sounding i'm just answering the phone what a great day this is jim shorty speaking frank marmion's on the other line he actually was on the phone and say jim shorty i heard you're giving away suzuki's this week what in the heck is going on yes, yeah i remember oh. always driving i almost always driving into specific things or on commute and listening and hearing that and see and you're reminding me because honestly, I know the name, but now it's all coming back to me again. <laughs> and I hear it all the That's time when you're in Pittsburgh. It's it's such a big thing. So let's kind of look at you, 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 in a lot of ways, looking at Napoleon Hill and all that stuff, you trusted this, right? I did. It yeah. felt right for you. 
And that's part of your success, right? You knew that what you treated your customers, if that could be marketed yes. to which the days of television and radio, which are not anymore, those days are gone. I mean, they still, people still think it, it, they're good, but I, I'm sure more and more brand recognition of where people are going now is changing. It and is, it, it's completely. And, but you came in at a time where you had a tagline. We all know Pittsburgh somehow has, because I go in other cities and I listen, they don't have brand recognition. Somehow Pittsburgh doesn't. There are a few guys out there like you that have this brand recognition that you can walk out through town and they'll know it. I don't know. It must be a Pittsburgh thing, right? Could be. You think Could of be. what a great day. You think about specifically enough Edgar Schneider. You think of just certain people in this town a Pittsburgh yeah. for people that are in Pittsburgh that are watching this on Pittsburgh TV and listening to this and saying, Oh my gosh, I'm interviewing this guy. The <laughs> fact is that's it. And that is a brand. This is the thing I try to tell my clients. I have to tell everybody once people know you for some reason and they have brand recognition, they're going to buy from you more than the person who does not have brand recognition. No question. No question. It's the bottom line was, did you, do you feel that that was the way to grow your empire in Pittsburgh, meaning your car empire is yeah. this mantra? I to, yeah. yeah, I have to say no. I have to say no to that because what happened was, again, I wanted to change direction. And so I had learned from Napoleon Hill this idea of Seacash per Council. I did it with Mr. Hamilton. I did it with Pressure Financial. And I knew how well it worked. So I can, I can recall the conversation exactly. I said to Frank Marmy and I said, hey, um, I'm a car salesman. I'm not a doctor. I'm not the same thing I'm saying right now. I said, I'm, I'm not an advertising guy. I said, so what you're saying makes sense, but I don't know. I said, if it works, we'll keep doing it. Well, guess what? It worked and it kept working. It always works. We never changed. We never changed the formula. It just kept working. And, and, and again, to, to make it clear, I'm not an expert. I'm really not. I just study experts. And that's the difference between me and a lot of people is I study experts. You they go, say, well, that's, that's the top entrepreneurs. Bottom line, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. Go, they go to the best. They go to the sure. best person in each area and they grow from them. Let's think about, you know, uh, Richard Branson, yeah. he seeks the top people in every area. He's not yeah. thinking he's the expert. He delegates it to the right people. That's successful entrepreneurs. They don't aren't the constant, I'm doing everything myself. I'm going to other people. And that's exactly. very interesting when you looked at Napoleon Hill and the successful ones study the thought leaders. They study the thought leaders all the time. And I am looking at work. That's an improvement. I'm looking at self-improvement. It's looking more and more at the thought leaders Luckily, I have some counsel of people who tell me about everyone's thought leaders and I have like almost like a photographic memory and I remember someone saying something or because I interview such amazing people like yourself, I'm able to go back and say, oh, let me quote this or do that. Seeking <laughs> counsel. That's cool. So you went and looked at those thought leaders and that's how you built and said, here are my mistakes I was making. Now, this is who I'm going to bring in the right people in every area of the business to make it a success, it sounds like. Correct. Right? Right. And, and so, you know, I believe I'm a very big believer in uh, my to not do list. So I go to expert counsel and I say, well, here's the things I'm doing. I say, oh, wait a second. Number four, five and six, you got to stop doing that. And sometimes the stop list is way more effective than the go list. Right. And so I, I actually accumulated or I created both. Like I had a go list, I had a stop list. Right. So here's the 10 things I got to do. Here's the 10 things I got to stop doing. And if I'm doing stupid stuff, what's going to have more of an impact? The stupid stuff that I stop doing or the good stuff I start doing? I would venture to say that it's the stupid stuff that I stop doing that's going to move me quickest to the, to the goal. But the interesting thing about it is I don't have to choose, uh, but I do have to do both. I really believe that. So if I want to be healthy, I got to eat healthy food, but I got to stop eating unhealthy food. Right. And there is, there is a lot to that. So what I, what I did with Frank was I, I, I told him, Frank Marmion, I told him point blank, I said, Frank, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a car salesman. I want to sell more cars. Here's what I want to do with Suzuki. And, uh, and so if it works, we'll keep doing it. And I really did delegate that responsibility to Frank. And he ran the whole deal. I did nothing. I got this. Like I said, he handed me the script. I read the script. I mean, anybody could have done what I did in terms of the script reading and all that. Now, maybe other people would take more time because they're not like, I mean, I've been selling cars since I was, you know, I was born between two bumpers, right? right? So I can speak very well. And, and you know better than anybody, this is not a scripted conversation. I have no idea what you're going to ask me. No clue. I have no notes. You didn't send me any questions. And you're I impressed by me. I, this is all my head. Yes. This is, that's how yeah. I was 
So I prefer that, you know, so, so, so we're not speaking from any kind of a plan. I, I have no idea what your next question is and I will answer to the best of my ability. But that said, with, with Frank, I delegated that to him. It kept working and I really do believe, here's what I believe. I believe anybody can seek expert counsel. Just find some, if you're the smartest guy in the room, if you're the smartest girl in the room, you're in the wrong room. You got to get out of that room and you got to get, you got to get to where you're the dumbest person in the room, the poorest person in the room, whatever the case may be, whatever you're working on, but you want to get around people that are way better than you. And then just start asking questions and take a blank piece of paper with you and just write things down. And it's like amazing. Like, wow, that's a really good idea. Of course it is. The guy's a multi-billionaire. He's got all kinds of good ideas. So I started taking these good ideas and putting them into play, taking the bad ideas and pulling them out of play. And, and over time, I just kept getting better and better and better. And it went from one dealership to two to three. When I left, it was six. I'm retired. Uh, so I retired in 2016. But here's here's a really interesting thought about this, which your viewers may really appreciate about branding. So I left at six dealerships and um, roughly, I'd say around 350 employees. When I started, it was 40 employees, um, one dealership selling about a thousand cars a year. When I left, it was selling probably about 5,000 cars a year, roughly. Well, now that same dealership group sells over 25,000 cars per year. And it's 17 dealerships and I'm not involved. It's my children own that business. And my children, and my brother own that business independently of myself, 100%. I have no involvement whatsoever, but there's the legacy. There's the, there's what happens with this kind of stuff is that it just keeps going on as long as they follow the principles, which is find somebody smarter than you and have a conversation. When you want to, when you want to do something, you know, that people say that, or no, it's a scientific fact. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Right. That straight line is seek expert counsel. And, and even with seek expert counsel, there's going to be some, some sense of a circuitous route. But the absolute worst thing you can do, and, and, and audience, you want to write this one down. Trial and error is a recipe for disaster. Do not do trial and error. The trials take way too long. When your bankruptcy imminent, there ain't, there ain't no more take too long, right? You have to act fast. Wow. So, Trials were too long and the errors can be devastating. And if I had made an error back when I was bankruptcy imminent, I'm gone. I don't make it. So I couldn't do uh, 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 trial and error. And I don't recommend it. Even with, like I said, seeking, seek expert counsel, there is some sense of trial and error because your, your expert may make a recommendation which doesn't fit your mold, exactly. but most of them will. So you have to do some sense of trial and error. But believe me when I tell you this, if you do trial and error, it might take you 10 years to get to where you want to get to, if you get there at all, versus if you do seek expert counsel, you'll get, you'll get there in a year, two years, that kind of a thing. It's just way faster. I so. see. I like that idea. How do you seek expert counsel without paying for it? Or are you going to have to pay for it? What are your thoughts? Well, I, you know, interestingly enough, so the fellow that I went to initially was Mr. Hamilton. And there you go with the trust and the knowing Mr. Hamilton was my dad's former partner. He was um, a very successful automobile dealer. Uh, had the had the cars, the boats, the houses, the whole thing, and I knew that he was he was he was wealthy. He was very successful, and so I knew that I could go to him. Number one, I knew that I could trust him, and so that's what I did. And so that was free, right? And then I uh, so and I kept going back, and it was always free. You know, uh, I think he even bought lunch, right? Because I had no money. <laughs> so, anyways, Mr. Hamilton was a great resource. But from that, I learned so much about Seek Expert Counsel that I then reached out to uh, Chrysler Financial, which is which was the financial arm of. Um, of Jeep at the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Jimmy Lawn came in with a, with a, with some people and asked me some questions, which clearly indicated that I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It was very obvious. And so he actually brought in a team of auditors to audit my books and give me a, um, a roadmap to follow. Well, that audit would probably be probably at that time have been 25, 30 grand to get that done. They did it for free. Absolutely free. And, you know, I have to say my dad uh, was in the business for 22 years when he died and or he was the owner, he was in the business for, geez, probably 36, 37 years when he died, but he had a lot of good friends. And so those friends, it wasn't like I called in any favors. I just called and said, I need help. And they came in and they just did this for free. Right. And, and again, we're talking, you know, 25, 30 grand bill to have a full uh, books, uh, right. you know, a financial statement on it. And then they came back and did it again a year later, again, all free. And talk about a list of advice. that was just unbelievable. GMEC, uh, Jim Kacharski, a good friend of my dad's, uh, I, I asked for, for help. He sent me um, a, a four, they were actually VHS tapes. You're too young to know what those are, but with VHS tapes and, and with workbooks on how to be a successful car dealer, how to be a successful car dealer. I tore those things up. Um, I joined uh, 
uh, think tanks that did cost money. I went to training classes that did cost money. Uh, I went to um, uh, NADA was a was is a, a group uh, thing for automobile dealers. So I did some different things that did end up costing money. But initially, GMAC, Chrysler Financial, uh, and um, uh, Mr. Hamilton, and also Al Lazar, who was my banker, also very helpful uh, to me. And this was all free. And they were very gracious. And they were all friends of my dad's. And, and um, I think that was a part of the, the, the thing. But, you know, what I found about truly successful people, uh, you're going to talk to 10 successful people. Nine will say yes, one will say no, and you just move on from the no. Wow. But these, these successful people love to mentor people like me. And as long as I show an interest and I don't, I got to show up early and I got to be ready with, and I got to be a student, right? And I've got to be very willing to listen and learn and, and execute, right? And they take a lot of pride. Mr. Hamilton took a lot of pride in the success of Jim Shorkey because he felt that uh, he was uh, responsible for that. And he was, he absolutely positively was. So I think that the successful people kind of feel like they have a, uh, an obligation to do that. I know I do. I, I decided back in 2001 that I couldn't take all the credit for my success. I knew I couldn't because yeah. I had so many Mr. Hamilton's out there. So I decided that someday I was going to do the same thing. And that's why I'm here today. Uh, this is what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm retired. But I, I, I think if I took my knowledge to the grave with me, I think I would be amongst the most selfish people in history. And I'm just not going to do that. So uh, I have a message. I know how to be successful. I know how to teach people to be successful. And that's what I'm, that's my goal today is to teach people how to win, how to be successful and whatever it is that they want to be successful at. So you take all your knowledge, all your, and your success, you put together that plus the together, and now you're doing it again. So you wrote a book, right, Jim? So talk about the book. And uh, I've, I'm going to take the idea of seek expert counsel, and I'm going to take initiatives in the next couple of weeks to say, okay, who am I going to get with that is much larger than I am where I'm going and how I can get with them? Because I have the tools and the tool shed. I can reach out to anyone in the world because of my show. And this is the thing that people have to understand. If you have a podcast, you have a radio show, you have a television show, you can become a successful business owner or entrepreneur because ultimately you can get to the right people because it's all about surrounding yourself with the right people. So let's talk about your book now. So, yeah, the book is, is just a story of what happened. You know, like I said, my, and I, I, just a quick synopsis of 19, my dad died on March 24th, 1996. So that's a clear day to me. If I knew half as much as I thought I knew when my dad died, I would have been really, really smart. The fact is I had no clue. Um, the expert counsel came to me. I turned it down. That's how arrogant I was. Mm. So my dad was part of a think tank. And one of the deals with the think tank is they will send in a team of members from the group to run the dealership alongside you while you're going through this transition period. Because having a father die, the founder of the company die, is a really, really big deal. Guess what I did? I resigned. I got this. I don't need your help. I didn't, I wasn't rude that way, but I just, I got, I resigned from the group. And I went on and did my own thing two years later on bankruptcy imminent. And, um, and, and that's a, that's a story in and of itself. I, and I get a, I get a call from my sister tomorrow morning when we open up the dealership, the bank account's going to be a negative $55,000. Never forget that. Mm. Meaning check, checks are going to bounce. So I mean, needless to say, I didn't sleep that night. I went to the, to the, to the bank the next morning. I was there before they opened up, I think 730 in the morning, they weren't even open. And I told El Lazar I would meet him there and he came out and greeted me and we went in and he assured me that the checks wouldn't bounce. And I want to be clear about this. I really didn't feel like those were my checks. I felt like that were, those were my dad's checks and that was my dad's name. And how could I let this happen? Right? So I was so embarrassed, so sad, sad for my dad. I didn't want my dad's legacy to be bankruptcy. That would have been what it, what it was. That would have been his legacy. In essence, I mean, he runs for 20 years, two years later, two years later, it's gone. I couldn't yeah. accept that. Right. So I was very sad, very upset. And that's why I'm a very big believer in the idea of, I, I like to be, I like to dial into my fears. I like to dial into my, 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 uh, my bad moments and, or, or I even predict future bad moments. I, I think about, you know, for example, some sort of a chronic uh, disease. I think about that, like, okay, how can I, what can I do to prevent, delay, mitigate that? Right. So anyways, so um, that's the story, but it tells the story of how, you know, the, my dad dying and then the bankruptcy imminent and then all that went into that. And then the, what I just told you already, it, 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 it's, 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 I don't know that I'd really call it a book. I'd call it a chapter. It's a very short read. So it's not going to, it's probably not going to win the, um, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize anytime soon or the, uh, what's the, uh, it's, a good way, it, it's a good way to tell a story. 
It's yeah, Tom, it is a great way to tell a story. Next yeah, thing, but so basically, what you're doing now is what you got the help to grow your business. Yes, you're yes. now want to help other people do the same, and that's Perfect. your mission for the rest of your life is to give back and to give opportunities. So, where can people connect with you? So they can start that process sure. of learning, especially some of the great advice like you taught today about seeking expert counsel. Well, I would say, the, so the expert counsel, we have a group called, um, it's the uh, goal, goal Achievers Community, and you can join that. It's a private group. You just join, and then we have to approve you, which we um, approve everybody, quite frankly. And, and then if, if garbage shows up, we get rid of it. That, that's that simple, but it's called the Goal Achiever Community. And these are like-minded people, which is really what it's all about is either getting amongst people that are trying to learn or getting amongst people that have already learned. But either way, there's benefits to that. So it's the Goal Achiever Community. So that's very easy. It's on Facebook, Goal Achiever Community. Next is on Facebook is um, the uh, our, our, our little company is called Results From Thinking. And uh, you can find us, it's all one word, Results From Thinking. Very easy to find on a, on a Facebook search. And then uh, the next uh, part of it is um, we have a we have an online uh, per personal development course called Rethink You 2.0, uh, Rethink You 2.0, which you'll see that in the in the, the sites. And uh, it's a course that, that uh, we designed. This is the second uh, uh, rendition of it, and it's um, A to Z. You know how, how how to do what I did, right? A to Z, and it's all based on. I mean, I've read over two thousand books on self development. And oh. all that information is condensed into this course, which is a video format. It is a, a text format. So you get a, you get a workbook, you get the videos. And that's, by the way, that's $397 all in. And, uh, but also we, we actually, it's really neat how we did it. We have people like yourself who have done the course, who have just gone on to do crazy things in a good way. I mean, and, uh, and then they're, they're representing what they did. And, and so it's really kind of neat. So it's myself and Derek Kelly and, and uh, Chuck Bellina, who was really very much behind us, he died of uh, 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 colon cancer. So he's very much part of our spirit. And then there's uh, probably an additional five or six people in there uh, that um, are actually teaching or, uh, or testimonial type stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just really cool how we did it. But it's a great course. And, you know, if you do what we tell you to do, you're going to be successful beyond your wildest imagination. And by the way, it's not, it could be about money. It could be about health. It could be about love could be about all all three right it's all whatever it means to you to be successful in life so anyways that's there that's 397 dollars and we do have a podcast it's called the pragmatist podcast which we're very new at figuring it out um getting some traction there uh not to your level by any stretch but hope to be there someday and again it's not about a million it's not about any of that kind of stuff which is how jim shorty thinks a million get a million people a million followers you know it's all about one person one person that's all i'm interested in is one person one very important person who is on the other side of this message and i i need one to say okay i'm gonna do this and then all i want in return is your stories right and so if that number is 10 that's 10 times the joy. If it's 100, it's 100 times the joy. And quite frankly, if it is a million, it's a million times the joy. But I don't want to focus on a million. That's how big thinkers think. And that's how Jim Shorkey, car guy, thinks. But I'm really cautious about that because I know I can become consumed with stuff. And I don't want that for this particular uh, mission. Wow. Quite frankly, I do believe it'll, it'll be a million. I do. Because it's just very good pragmatic pragmatic by the way the the idea behind it is what can we say to people that is sensible sensible excuse me reasonable actionable and we don't want to deal in theory i don't want theory i want science that so there's sense. so much theory out there i don't want theory when i talk to you about marketing i want science i don't want well this is what we think might work no i want to show me it worked in texas oh i'm with you okay if it works in texas it's going to work in pittsburgh okay. most likely that's so that's how i view it that's very good. And you're, you're, you're a student of the game. So thanks again Jim, for stopping by. I appreciate it. And uh, it was great meeting you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm All right. You're blessed. listening and watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley show here. And, you know, we talk about the American dream and my guest today is going to get, you know, really describe that whole uh, American dream entrepreneur, Olga Volushina. Uh Olga, thanks for stopping by. How are you today? Hello, hello. I'm, I'm I am uh, here from Dallas, Texas. Awesome, fantastic. I'm over in Fort Worth, so we're not far from each other at all. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, You're I, neighbor. I, I'm, not, I'm not, yes, yes, we're not far at all from each other. So let's just jump right into it, Olga, and specifically enough, your 
this American dream. Tell us, did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Is this something growing up you wanted to do? No, that is just something that, you know, dream that came out of nowhere. It was just, you know, first we came in the, to the United States in 1995. And at that point, we didn't even realize what are we getting into? And, you know, we were coming for a beautiful life, uh, which, you know, I was surprised with, um, with the attitude of American people. Um, on every person that I've met, first of all, you know, everybody smiled here. That was number one. Uh, and everybody was eager to try to help you with whatever it is. Like, you know, if, if they could not understand you, they would try to find a translator. If you needed to find something, they'll recommend you, you know, find the book or recommend you the person. And I was absolutely just surprised and uh, encouraged by that. And I was a nurse back in Russia and I came here with the dream become a, in working in medical profession. But when I, we came here, um, I realized that medical profession here was very different. It was a lot like entrepreneurial. Um, you have to do a lot of business, but you have to have a lot of business, like, you know, mind and dealings and, right. uh, and all, all kinds of things. And I was like, well, that's a little bit different from my dream of being in medical profession. Why don't I become, you know, a business major <laughs> student? And I went back to college, studied international business and trade, studied uh, computer programming, um, all kinds of different business uh, classes and courses. Uh, meanwhile, my husband started uh, working for himself because that was probably the easiest way of, you know, getting him. His English was not that very well, so it was easier for him to, you know, to find the work on the side. And little by little, our little business grew into one company, then we branched another company. And now we're thinking on how we're going to diversify and do something else. So, so, so tell and, us about the company. What's the company, first company you started and then how all these well, companies grew from that? Uh, the first company we started was a small construction company. We were doing, you know, little handyman services. Then we started doing some kitchen remodeling. Then it became kitchen and bathroom custom remodeling. And it became... Uh, where you know we had um, jobs lined up for two three years ahead of us, and um, we had never advertised. And I was you know very pleased. And my husband turned out to be very uh, good in doing what he was doing, and I was helping him with the business side. And at that time, you know, I also worked and uh, went to college and everything, but um, I was just you know helping him. And little by little, I became. A <laughs> business owner and right now he tells me like well there is a lot of things that I cannot do whatever you're doing so just you know that's your job that's <laughs> you you do that so um it it was you know wonderful adventure just you know to see how from coming here with uh pretty much not knowing uh the language not knowing the system not knowing the culture uh we had not even dreamed of, you know, having something like, you know, running our own company. And all of a sudden we're living our American dream that, you know, to me, I always turn around that my stuff and just like, uh, is that us? Yeah, exactly. So you go from that. And then what's the second business you got started? And the second business we branched out out of our construction company when uh, we had been called onto some emergency jobs when the houses got flooded or roofs had been destroyed by hail. Right. And we just, you know, branched out a, from just custom construction, we branched out to emergency um, water mitigation, fire mitigation, um, and anything that has to do with insurance claim. Which is a huge business with tons of competition, but also tons of opportunities. You just have to be able well, to be, get there. Get there. Dallas is, yeah. Dallas oh, is number one, oh, wow. number one in our inhale. So, you know, out of the whole roofing industry, Dallas is number one. And, you know, without even knowing, we turned out to be right in the middle of this huge industry. It's, and it's, it's very mm, interesting, you know, when you say, when sometimes people ask me, what do you do? I'm like, well, we do roofs. 
you know? It's <laughs> just roots or do you guys do other water damage stuff too? Well, we do all, all, all kinds of, yeah, we do all kinds of, but you know, it, it's very seasonal. Like for example, you know, last February when we had that big, huge freeze, you know, all we did is water jobs. Uh, when there is a huge uh, hail comes through, you know, that's all we do, just, you know, just roofs. So, you know, it's, it's and very- the roofs always stays because of the hail. The hail oh, yeah. the roofs like crazy. I got it. And you hear that banging. I understand. And especially this time of year, right? Is this when you guys fix all the roofs from when that, that the, the hail storms were, right? Yep, yep, yep. And, you know, and you would think that roofing is not very, you know, something that uh, no girl would dream of, but it's it's actually, it's it's pretty good. I love doing it. <laughs> because especially because insurance companies are involved in that business model. So basically, I understand that because one of my clients is a uh, surf pro of Southern Butler. And so that's out in the Pittsburgh area, but I they're, they're a uh, fire, water, restoration type company. And, the, the, you know, there's a lot of different things in the Western Pennsylvania than Texas. You have different types of weather, but because insurance companies cover these water losses, all these different things, it's just, you got to act quickly or they're not covering it. And that's something you need to educate your customers, right? When they know there's a trouble, there's a problem, give you a call, right? As fast as Absolutely. possible. Absolutely. And on the other side, you know, we are helping people at their most desperate time. And that is my favorite part is because, you know, we come uh, when people are at a loss, both, you know, physical and, uh, mentally, because, you know, they cannot imagine how they're going to function for the next nine months. And when you tell them, like, exactly. it's going to last about nine to 12 months, they were like, what? I thought it will be done in one month. No. <laughs> so you you work with uh, a lot of uh, people who had never been exposed to anything like that. And yes, it's 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 a it's a pleasure. It's like, you know, it's it's a something that you enjoy doing by the final results because at exactly. the end you know yeah and because of your construction business you add the other component if there's a fire basically you're going to be able to rebuild the whole thing some people just restore the thing you're going to rebuild it you're not just going to tear it down when there's a fire i've been on site before with one of my clients and basically saw the whole thing gutted and fire and they had to gut the whole thing out so if there's a big fire that's what you guys do as well but then you'll do the reconstruction of it as well so the yeah. other business fits hand in hand with your first business right both together that can oh yeah yeah well yeah you have to have pretty good you know to be a successful restoration company you have to have extensive knowledge of construction construction materials because you know it's it's plays a big role in in restoration because you know what's restorable what's not restorable um so you know there's First a lot of things think about they want things restored they don't want to rebuild they want to restore it so that's your <laughs> whole process for sure. Now, my question for you is, you said you have another business venture coming up? Is something else? Well, yes, with everything, you know, that's been with pandemic and people unable to travel places and just, you know, people being, um, you know, closed and within the country itself or within the state, you know, we were thinking that uh, a lot of people had a lot of success with Airbnbs. And that's another thing that we would love to do because we, again, we know, have an extensive knowledge of construction. We know extensive knowledge of maintaining the homes. And um, honestly, I just love real estate too. So <laughs> hey, another great opportunity. So where can people connect with you? Where's the best place, especially, you know, just to learn about you? Because again, you're an entrepreneur as well, celebrity entrepreneur doing all the different things you're doing. Uh, speaking everything out there can talk about different things. Where's the best place to connect with you? Uh, well, I have my personal website, olga.voloshina.com. And we're on Facebook, um, and Olga Voloshina, and uh, on Instagram, uh, Voloshin6041. Uh, and from my personal page, you can get connected to, Facebook, to both Facebook and Instagram. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming by. And thanks for coming on the show. Very great about what you're doing in the American dream. Great and very inspiring. Gives other people opportunity that they too can come from somewhere and, and just transform themselves. So thanks for stopping. Yeah, me. we still have the best country in the world. All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And, you know, when I talk about a topic that we 
talk about teeth and the, the uh, my doctor on today is going to talk about wisdom teeth in general uh dr ted grellner uh dr ted thanks for stopping by and you know I'm making sure I'm brushing three times a day, sir. So I, I, I hope I'm in good shape, right? Well, you're doing, doing better than I am then. <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to do it even more sometimes because yeah. it, it, people forget how important it is uh, to have the, to take care of your mouth. And then, so it's too late at times. Let me add one thing to that is that if you brush three times a day, you could be missing the same places three times a day. So the best way to actually manage the, the decay rate is to limit sweets in the amount of time that they're in your mouth. Goodness, remember the, having, oh, that's interesting. I don't, no more sweets. I've cut everything out in nine months. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that. But I tell my patients that they could have fewer cavities, maybe having one large piece of birthday cake one time a day, cutting out sweet tea, uh, uh, sucking on peppermints, uh, putting sugar on all the other things, processed sugar in their food, uh, limiting the amount of time. Because what happens is the bacteria, the film that forms on your teeth, it, it basically turns that sugar into acid. And where that plaque sits, that's where the acid's going to be eating away at the teeth. So you, if you could brush three times a day, but again, if you're missing the same places, that's where your cavities are going to be. So your best defense is limiting the amount of time that you have sweetness in your mouth. All right. So we're going to jump right into wisdom teeth today. And yeah. I remember, yeah. I think I got my wisdom teeth removed about 12. I'm six foot 10, a former professional wrestler. So uh, everything went quickly with me and the wisdom teeth went out a lot earlier than expected. But you're going to educate pe uh, parents today about wisdom teeth. And go ahead I'd like to, yes. The, um, the, the thing that most parents don't know is that nature gives us one opportunity to create the best experience for your teen. And now that can vary anywhere from 15 to 20. But there, there are three factors. The first factor is getting the wisdom teeth out before the roots finish growing. And the reason for that is that there's limited room for the wisdom teeth to grow. So if you have, if this is the, the immature wisdom tooth, but you let it go and it turns into this, oh well, guess what? Uh, you're not gonna have a very good time when it comes to getting this out. So to get to this stage, you're not going to know. Your, your child's not going to know. You're not going to know. The best thing is get an oral surgeon and get an, get an x-ray basically like this so that you can see, the surgeon can see it, how much the roots have developed. It's, if you can get them before the roots finish growing, while they're growing, they're soft on the end. And if they happen to be close to that jaw nerve that goes through the jaw that everybody worries about the risk of injuring that nerve, well, that soft root end provides a certain level of, of, of uh, comfort in that there's a lesser chance of injuring it than if you have a hard root laying right against it. So that's number one. Um, the shorter tooth actually is easier to get out than the longer tooth. That kind of makes sense. Right. But the second factor is that between 15 and 20, the soft, immature jawbone of a teenager hardens like slow setting concrete. So between 15 and 20, once you get to 20, that bone is like concrete. But remember, at 20, those roots have probably finished growing. So you're at a significant uh, risk at that point in terms of getting it out before you have pieces of root breaking and, and just a difficult time. Not, not to make things you know, you know, bad, but there's an easier time to do it. So I'm trying to describe when that easier time is. So it's somewhere between 15 and 20. And the other advantage to being a teen is that you have more stem cells. And most people are familiar with that. Those are the cells that help with healing, basically. The more of them you have, the easier you get through it. And if you compare what a teenager is going to be, what that experience is for a teenager compared to a 30-year-old, the teenager is going to beat them every time. So uh, there, there just is no advantage to waiting to see if they come in or they give you problems because you're, you're more than likely going to, you're going to lose that bet. Definitely gonna lose that bet. So basically, what age do you recommend parents to start to check check on that? And I'd, that? I'd get well. Some of it depends on how, about when the teeth came in. If they know when their child's uh, adult teeth came in slower than others, so they might be able to wait until sixteen or seventeen. But if they were early, they might want to get them in at fifteen. And if it's too early, come back in a year or two. The surgeon can help to to determine that. I like to get them when the roots are about half to three quarters grown. So is that usually the time that you go do this? It is, isn't. It's most, going, most. Oral, go, going to oral surgeon, right? It's not your regular dentist or to get the, to be able to check it out. It's mostly an oral surgeon. 
Well, let's put it this way. A general dentist generally doesn't have the surgical experience. And that's not true in all cases, but there are very few general dentists that really have the surgical capabilities equal to an oral surgeon. Uh, second, they don't have the ability to put patients to sleep. And, and most people, most kids are not going to want to be awake and aware of no, what's no, no. going on because, you know, there's something I realized uh, a ways into my career. I was thinking back on my own experience, having my very first wisdom tooth removed at 19. It was a miserable experience. It took the, the surgeon and he was a university oral surgeon, took him 45 minutes to get this one tooth out. And I remember that experience to this day. So that tells you what the value of being asleep and having no awareness of what that procedure was, be it easy or difficult. Now, obviously, if it was difficult, that's even better because then you don't remember it. So that that's my thought in terms of, of who does it. You know, you want someone who is licensed to do general anesthesia. They know how to deal with complications when it comes to removing wisdom teeth. And they have the experience to know what to do if there are problems. So, so let's just say you don't remove it and you, or you wait on it and wait too long. How bad is that the, the situation, especially to wait earlier to do it? It's easier to remove, but also you're dealing with a lot more issues, right? More recovery time and potential other uh, problems with your mouth later on. In general, the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be to do the surgery because the bone is much harder. If you wait until they give you problems, the, earliest problem is infection of the gum around the wisdom tooth, which means you're doubling the length of time that you're, it's going to take you to get through this because it's going to take you a week on antibiotics to get rid of the infection, to make it safer, to open it up, to get to that tooth. So it doesn't spread, you know, an infection that is, is still there. Um, let, let me also describe to you a, a situation I've run into a couple of times. I had a, a patient that came in with uh, an x-ray like this, but I noticed that the roots were fully grown, at, but I also noticed there was something strange about it. So I took a CT so I could look at it in three dimensions. So instead of this girl having two roots, she had four roots surrounding the nerve going through the jaw right underneath the tooth. So it's like two cowboys sitting on a, on a horse, that horse being the jaw nerve. And if there's any injury to that jaw nerve getting that tooth out, that means numbness to the jaw, the teeth, and the lip. So that, 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 provides a lot more difficulty to removing that tooth, you know, for the surgeon. And, uh, and this girl was only 22. Right. So most people think of, of, you know, getting them out before you're 25. I've seen this happen multiple times in 20 year olds. Oh, so again, if, if she had, if someone had paid attention to her x-ray and this is not to put the burden on general dentists, because most times they just don't have the experience to know, understand. you know, when to catch it. But if you can, if you can get your child your teen into an oral surgeon in your mid teens to start to look at things, then you can plan when's the best time to do it and the least risky. Where can we find information on you and learn more about these great tips and stuff? Where can we go? Well, I've, I've got a digital business card. It's linka, L-I-N-K-A dot U-S forward slash Dr. Ted, D-R Ted, linka dot U-S forward slash D-R Ted. There's all kinds of information there. The, the, the best and worst times to take out wisdom teeth, a uh, bunch of other things. It's, it's, there's good information and how to re reach me. Absolutely. Your, look, your practice is located where? I'm in Tampa, Florida. Um, yeah. Yep. And right. I've been, been doing this for a long time. <laughs> all right. Fantastic. All right. Well, appreciate you coming by, Dr. Ted. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome my special co-host, Greg Hanna of Toss C3. Toss C3. How are you, Greg? And I know you're excited about our guest today. You know, I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me, Neil. I'm super excited for our guest today. Yes, and it's Bernard Woods. He's the author of Inheritance. We're going to learn about his career as a writer and how why he wrote his autobiography. Greg, go on, and I know you're excited about the first question you have for today. Well, you know, hey, Bernard, uh, did you always want to be a journalist? Uh, I didn't always want to be a journalist. Like many journalists, I started, I, I wanted to be, uh, when I was young, and I write about the sum in the book, I, I wanted to be a poet. I thought, you know, because that's easy, you, uh, and you're full of emotions. Then you try writing fiction, 
uh, and you fail at that as well because you realize you're not good at making stuff up, but that becomes a real benefit uh, when it comes to writing nonfiction. And, uh, you know, you, you still get to do all of the stylistic stuff that a novelist can do if you do it right, but you, you get to go out and learn about interesting people in the real world. Now, you, it's interesting you talk about that, Bernard, and, and the fact that writers, they always are writing, even if they never got published at the first part. You were writing to enjoy writing, so you're going poetry first, doing some fiction, and what kind of led you in the direction of journalism? How long did that process take to start saying, I'm going to be more of a journalist, but I'm going to write for fun, but ultimately I'm going to figure out what really kind of I want to sink my teeth into? Well, I, I did a ridiculous thing and uh, got a PhD in ancient philosophy, learned ancient Greek and Latin, and I uh, taught those for a while and was writing, waking up early in the morning to try to write fiction. And then I, I realized that the only way to live a truly Socratic life, when I finished the PhD, I didn't want to be a professor. And people come to me for me to profess to them. But the way to be a Socratic was to go ask uh, you know, difficult questions, people that didn't want to be asked those questions. So that was when I started doing, uh, doing really journalism seriously and trying to elevate it to, uh, to write stories that read like art, but feel, you know, but are true and feel like journalism. Well, wow, that's pretty incredible. And PhD, that's good for you, man. That's phenomenal. From Duquesne University there as well. That's, uh, I, I went to, uh, Went to Duquesne in Pittsburgh, and I, I noticed we share. Uh, yeah, Bernard, share yeah, that yeah, sure. I have a master's degree at Duquesne in education, so that's interesting. I have that Duquesne ring, so I understand exactly the whole thing for sure. Are you in Bernard? Are you in Pittsburgh? No, no, I'm in Baltimore. I live in Baltimore now. I uh, when I was in grad school, I was there, but my then-to-be wife was here, uh, and so I, as soon as I finished my coursework, I left Got uh, Pittsburgh and came down this way. All right. I still have a lot of friends there. All right, absolutely. Okay, good, great. Next question. Wow. You know, Bernard, why, what is it about writing? Why do you enjoy writing so much? You know, there's a phrase in, in that writers say of, I hate writing, but I love having written. And I'm the opposite of that. I, I hate the having written part, um, but I love writing. And, and I think it's because it's, the, it's a way to make sense of the world in real time. And it's a way to test your own beliefs against yourself and to become other with yourself. You write it and then you can come back later and read and see what you think of yourself in that moment. So it, it arrests the flow of time in some ways. And, and, you know, as I was writing this book, my dad was dying. He's a main character in the book. He was dying of ALS. Uh, it was very, very intense. And I learned through that experience also that sentences and paragraphs are a really good way to uh, build levees to deal with floods of emotion. Wow, and that's uh, the, the interesting when you talk about that. And so when you say, what, what is the, uh, the part of writing you don't enjoy? Is it the finished product or is it the start? What, what would you say to this? Oh, the start's pure joy because uh, there's nothing, you can do anything. Uh, and however bad it is, you can throw it away and you can always start. Uh, and, and any page is that way, there's no draft that, ever stands. So it's very freeing that you can always change it. Unlike in real life or uh, conversations like this, you flub, you flub. Uh, but in writing, you're always, you can go back and make it be your best uh, self. And so I guess the part that I don't like, and it's not that I don't like it, uh, but that I like less is once it's, once you put it out in the world, I'm kind of ready to move on to the next thing. I've enjoyed talking about this book because well, books are different. Like with an article, you're always on to the next article. With a book, you learn so much from what people take from them and you were alone with them for so long. It is really joyful to uh, be able to talk to people about a book that you're done with. Oh, that's terrific. You know, it's obviously you're very passionate. What would you say to an aspiring writer out there who's either just getting started or just can't get the level of success that you've enjoyed? I mean, the industry is just destroyed. Uh, newspapers have been dying for a long time. I was so lucky that I got to work at, at alternative weekly papers, uh, like the Pittsburgh City Paper. And uh, I worked at the Baltimore City Paper, and there you cover everything. You have to, one night, you're, you know, at least I did. One night I was cover, writing a review of a play, the next day covering police or something, and you really get a sense of your city. 
and the world. And, and there are some of those coming back. So the first advice would be like, find somebody, someplace like that, that will let you experiment with voice if you can and with the different styles to write in. Uh, but it's, it's they're, they're going away mostly uh, very quickly. The magazine industry's failing, the book industry. It, it's hard to think of how young writers, especially nonfiction writers are going to be able to learn. Um, I'm, I'm trying to work with a lot of young writers, but the thing is, is it's up to you if you're a young writer to invent the world that you want to write in, because, uh, you know, there are, find the websites and only submit to the places you read. Don't send off something off to somewhere if you're not a reader of it too, because, uh, you know, if you just expect everyone to read you and you don't read anyone else, then, you know, you're, you're not really playing the game either. And you're keeping other people from maybe being noticed in the way they'd like to as well. That's a, that's a really great point. You know, one other quick question is, you know, for people out there just getting into journalism or been in for a little bit, um, what would you consider to be a cover story? How do you know a good cover story? I mean, the internet makes it weird, right? Because like, what's a cover anymore on the internet? And uh, that's, that is how most people read their news. And it, and it is for the reader a golden age in that regard. I can go this morning and read 10 great stories that 1990, I never would have been able to find uh, without going to a library. So there is a, a great uh, profusion of writing for the reader, but for the for the writer, you know, or for the editor, a cover story was one that would, at, at City Paper, at least for us, was one that would grab the attention of someone in the box. It's right. got to, you walk by it on the street, what's going to make you reach in that box and grab it? Um, if you're not a person who would ordinarily grab it. There are a couple other things like you, you, it needs to be a longer story, a story that can bear out some weight that feels, and it needs to have good images. I mean, sometimes the better story just was something real square that didn't have a good picture. And so that wouldn't necessarily be the cover story. I love that. And that's a great tip for social media marketers out there as well. People in social media, how do they gain the attention? There's got to be great copy and there's got to be a great photo or a great image or a great video. You can't expect to capture people's attention and don't have both. It sounds like Bernard, you have that. Yeah, I mean, what I, what I did to break into the city paper, ultimately after pitching for a long time and being ignored, if you want to be a writer too, you just got to get ignored a lot and realize people are just not going to respond to you for maybe a year. But then when they do respond, you got to be ready. And, but I started working with a, a photographer that was about at my same level of stuff. And we would go out and find stories and he would take the pictures. I'd write the story and we'd hand them a whole package. And you, you realize everyone's overworked. So if you can give them something that, especially once it's been tested and they know your work some, say, hey, we have a, here's a, all the photos you need, here's the, the copy you need, and here it is. That if you can save people work, they're gonna wanna work with you more. Yeah, so just a nice turnkey package. That's a phenomenal idea. Um, so to all those writers out there and just in general, either starting out or already been doing it for a while, how do you get your stories published as a writer? Uh, with great perseverance and patience. Uh, so you, you, what you need to mainly do is have a good pitch for any story that you wanna do. As contrary as it might seem, most places don't really wanna get a story up front because it might be more work to edit it to what, instead of like, hey, here's the idea I have. And you send out a pretty fleshed out pitch, but shorter than the story. That also explains why you're the person to write the story has links, uh, hyperlinks in it to your previous work so that you can, they can just click on it and see where you've written, uh, you know, very brief bio and at the bottom, you know, my work's also appeared in, I'm the author of this, my work's appeared in, so they can click. And still, even with editors that you know and have worked with, 99% of the time you're gonna get ignored and you'll send it to another place and another place and another place. Uh, and a lot lot of it's luck. If being able to see the right story, if you're in the right moment and something's happening, you may be able to, uh, you know, when I was working at City Paper, we got bought by the daily paper here, The Sun. And so then I pitched a story about that to the New York Times. Our Art Weekly's over. Our Art Weekly's dead. What does it mean for the daily paper that they were starting as an enemy of buys it? And so that was how I was able to first get in The Times was by, uh, realizing that the situation I was sitting on top of was a newsworthy situation. Uh, that's uh, interesting. You talk about that being perseverance is like anything. And what do you think Bernard now, how writers are so needed in so many different aspects than they were, I think 20 years ago, 
because of the evidence of social media, of email marketing, of all these different things, writers that do passionate work like you can find side hustles to really make money while doing what they love. It's really, there's so much opportunity out there for writers that may just don't understand. Yeah, I mean, and there are new, we just got two new nonprofit, uh, one online and one's gonna be print newspapers here in Baltimore, the Baltimore Beat, uh, which is a black owned and uh, black controlled nonprofit, black controlled nonprofit uh, print paper. And then the Baltimore Banner, also a nonprofit. Uh, so there are even some news things coming back. I don't know a lot about, I mean, we are in a, a profusion of text right now. The number of emails that, that everyone gets a day, the number of, and being able to cut through that with uh, really being able to tell a story, I do think has, uh, has merit. And, you know, I, I don't know how to give advice on that though. I've, I've been lucky through, because of my academic stuff, I've been able to teach on the side some of my wife is an academic that's helped me get benefits that's the real advice is have a spouse with a job that has benefits if you want to be a writer because uh otherwise i mean you're just you're in bad shape yeah. but uh, or, yeah. or have another job and wake up in, at night uh or in the morning and do it and hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.